0: Welcome to Craftlit. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 489. Imagination Gone Bad. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash and pledged their support to the show. I couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I am well. I hope you are too. We are having some lovely springy weather, so that's been great. I have mostly finished building an actual honest-to-goodness Recording booth that is insulated and everything. And I hope it stays comfortable for long enough in the year that we don't get the hot and sweatiness (laughs) that I had to deal with at the other place or the cold freezingness that I had to deal with at the other place. So fingers crossed that this will all work out well. But once again, yarn is insulating the recording booth. It is the most unconventional booth, but I'm very excited. And I think, I mean at least in my headphones, it's sounding pretty okay. So let me know if you notice anything weird or bad or uncomfortable. Some of the things that are hard to fix are things like sibilance. When the s's get really high-pitched and whistly, like that, that can be really hard to fix because That actually isn't something that happens in the recording. That's something that happens and gets worse in the compression to an mp3 process. So Justin and I can remove as much of the annoying things as we can do in the post-production, but there's just some stuff that goes wonky when you convert it to an mp3. And trust me, you do not want to download The files that we use to do the editing on, they are massive. So I apologize for any sibilance or other, they're called artifacts, other artifacts that might be annoying. But do let me know if there's anything in particular that is driving you nuts now that I have more of a booth set up. I have a really fun chapter for you today. But before I get to it, I have two things to tell you about. The first is, If you have ever wanted to draw things that you find in the nature and you find that you are constantly coming up short, that something just isn't quite right, that somehow you can't get the colors right or the shape or there's a shadow missing or something like that, if you've ever been frustrated by something like that, boy, do I have a solution for you. One of my mom friends here in New Hope, Pennsylvania, has become obsessed with mushrooms because we all have those moments when we wind up doing deep dives down interestingly odd things. And her love, her newfound love of mushrooms propelled her into wanting to learn how to draw. And I mean draw the way that back in 2015 when we were going on the York and Manchester and Lake District Craftlet tour, we talked a little bit about Beatrix Potter and The amazing illustrations, nature illustrations that she did that were, you know, scientific level illustrations. That's the kind of drawing that my friend was getting interested in. And she found a woman who had online classes. And then she found out that the woman was giving an actual workshop in real life. And so between the videos and the in real life workshop, she went from not considering herself an artist to doing some amazing art, and if I can get permission from her, I will post a couple of her pictures. They are extraordinary and, and just done with color pencils. That's it. Some watercolor pencils too, but mostly just color pencils. So she said, oh, you should come over and, and watch one of the videos and, and give it your own college try. And so I did, and I have never drawn so well in my life. So I've just been completely amazed by this woman's instruction. And because she is not someone who started out drawing this as a a profession or a vocation or even a, a love, she came to it later in life, she's not really precious about her information. And she doesn't, you know, kind of feed it out gradually and slowly. She just drops nuggets of, oh, and if you've always had trouble with something like this, you might want to try this solution. It worked for me. And she'll just, you know, drop a bomb like that on you. And all of a sudden, everything you'd done before that didn't work, now you know why. And holy smoke. So I am putting a link to her website. It is draw, D R A W, botanical, B O T A N I C A L, uh, not plural, just drawbotanical.com. And from there, you can find out all about her, her workshops and her classes and her online classes, which are pretty reasonably priced especially if you can get through all of them in a month you could pay very little to get access to her her videos and there are many and they are really well done and well paced so that's been a lot of fun and as soon as i'm done recording i'm going to head back over to Pam's and play with the colored pencils and the nature so yay the other thing i wanted to let you know is that many many weeks ago beckett of the History Chicks popped over to let me know that they had done an episode pretty recently, uh, as I recall, on Lucy Maud Montgomery. So if you are interested in getting even more information on the life and times of Lucy Maud Montgomery, because of course, they're able to do a much deeper dive than I can do on, on this podcast. Plus, they have much better innate context knowledge of time and place and period. So Go check out the History Chicks episode. You can get it from the Craftlit website if you go to episode 489. That's craftlit.com slash 489. You will arrive at the page with all of the links. And there are some pretty nifty pictures that I have on the show notes today. But before we get to the information that gets you to the pictures, we have a few voicemails to listen to. So let's do those first. Here we go.
1: Hello, Heather, it's Tara Worcester again. I was calling to do a check-in of your wonderful woolen listener-crafted blanket we made you five years ago. Yes, it's been five years today, April 20th, 2018, that we started assembling your blanket that we had made I was just calling to see how it's going as I sit here in a parking lot working on another blanket to send to warm someone else's bones. I hope you're having a great day, Heather, and I can't wait to listen to the next chapter. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Hello, Heather. It is Tara Brewster. I am calling one to give you. A warm and joyous happy Cinco Day Tequila birthday. I hope you're having a great one. And never mind your age, honey. You don't look a day over 44. Also, I was listening to Chapter 19 of Anne of Green Gables, and you mentioned the part where she scrubs the three spots off of the wood floor with sand. Well, I know about the sand thing because, Whenever you and my sister were kids, we take dishes outside and play with them in the dirt, and Mama would get mad. And before you bring them back in, be sure you take those clumps of dry sand and scrub the dirt off so that you can rinse them off and I can wash them. Something else I thought about was being that they're on somewhat of an island, won't salt be just as readily available as sand. And since I only ever really learned to scrub dishes in my sink, if there was crusted on food or burnt on something in the bottom. With salt, why didn't you just use salt on it, sprinkle a little bit, let it sit there, soak up the grease, and then rub out the rest of it if need be? But thinking back, salt would be more of a treasured commodity because you put it on your meats and you put it in your stews and it's how you got a large portion of your mineral vitamins in your diet was from the salt you consumed it was just a thought I had about scrubbing the floor with sand. Because I always, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Why don't you just use salt? I mean, it's, it's right there. You have a lot of it. You, oh, wait, no. No, no. <laughs> it's a block. It's in the pantry. It doesn't quite work that way. Okay. Just a thought. But I remembered the whole scrubbing things with uh, Columbus sand as a kid, which growing in Florida, growing up in Florida was one of those things I didn't really think about. Until I got up here and kept wondering why my feet aren't getting as soft as they used to in the summer down in Florida. Oh, that's right. I'm not spending, you know, six of the seven days of the week at the beach every summer. I hope you're having a great day. I hope you're having a fantastic birthday. And as always, I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Hello, Heather. It's Tara Worster. You mentioned Russet in the last episode, and that reminded me that I needed to call you and tell you. Amy Beth of the Fat Squirrel Speaks podcast showed and did a sort of micro-review of a book called Apples on episode 164 of her video podcast. Now, some background. Amy Beth likes apples. Like, you may think you like apples, but Amy Beth likes apples. She's apples for apples, if ever anyone was ever apples for apples. And she mentions this book and does a review and shows some pictures and will talk to you about apples, if you ever mention apples in her presence. She's just, she's the bee's knees when it comes to apples. <laughs> but if your other listeners were interested in a book about apples and <laughs> listening to someone wax rhapsodic about Apple, who happens to be a hilarious individual, check out Amy Beth of the Fat Squirrel Speaks podcast. I hope you're having a great day, Heather. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.
0: So Tara, the blanket check-in is that I, of course, still have the blanket. It spends all winter on our bed. It makes me happy every time I look at it. And I actually have favorited a picture of the uh, actually several of the squares, but the craftlet square I have used to show people just how crafty craftlet listeners can get. So yes, love, thank you. And if the person for whom you are making the new blanket doesn't appreciate it properly, I can totally take them. Oh, and I also put a link to the Russets episode that Tara was talking about, on the Craft Lit show notes at craftlit.com slash 489.
2: Hi, Heather. Uh, Diane and Boise calling about episode 483. I'm still behind, as usual. I wanted to make another little comment about babies in sugar water. Um, I had the unfortunate experience in November of having a baby. That part was fine. But having a baby who wound up in the NICU for with some breathing issues. She's great and lovely now. But I will tell you that one of the things that they did with her when she was crying and inconsolable and didn't feel good is the nurse came around and she had these little pleasable packets, kind of um, flexible plastic packets so that you could pull the top off and it was just like about a teaspoon of sugar water. And when my baby was inconsolable, she'd come around, open the little packet, squirt a couple drops of sugar water into her mouth and I will tell you that stopped the crying when nothing else would. So um it's something that's being used even in a hospital setting to soothe babies when other things aren't available. It works great. It definitely was a relief to me in those times where she just nothing was okay. So anyway, she's now a lovely almost six month year old and Like all babies, still love sweet things. So anyway, have a good day. Thanks for the great show.
0: Bye. Diane, I think I can say without fear of contradiction by anyone, congratulations on your six-month-old and having her out of NICU. And how cool is that about the sugar water thing? I did not know. I am thrilled. I would never, ever, ever have guessed it. But you know, every once in a while, those old wives' tales, and I'm using air quotes around them, really do pay off. So, thank goodness it worked for your baby and it must be working for lots of other people too. I hope they know what those little packets are so that they can do the baby water thing when they're home and miserable and screaming. Oh, and I shared a link on the official Craftlet page, the page that auto presents the episodes as they come out. I shared a link over there of a mom. She must be from New Jersey who is the coolest mom ever, talking about a poor mom, young mom with a a toddler throwing a tantrum, and how people reacted. And I just thought, you would have been the people to throw the poor mom a look of, been there, had that happen, I get it, you're doing great, kid, keep going. And oh, by the way, here's some sugar water. (laughs) You know, just in case the toddler is still young enough that sugar acts as an analgesic. So that video is over at the the Facebook Craftlet page. I will try to link to it. Facebook is sometimes really weird about links out like that, but I'll do my best so that you can see it on the Craftlet show notes as well. All right, things to know before we get into the chapter. Number one, Mayflower's As I was listening to this chapter, I kept hearing Mayflowers mentioned, and I thought that meant May, M-A-Y, space, flowers, as in flowers that bloom in May. And I was wrong. Mayflowers are actually a thing. They are a particular plant. They are Epigea repens, and you can find links to information on this particular, it's kind of a ground covering flower. Uh, a little bit viney. It can travel a little bit. Uh, Tiny little white flowers. Very, very, very pretty. I have a picture on the show notes and a link out to a wildflower site that has more information on this particular flower. They are lovely. And you can imagine if the world was covered with these things that it would be be really spectacular. Uh, They are indigenous to Prince Edward Island, so this is not something that is Imported from elsewhere. Of course, this is Lucy Bud Montgomery's childhood coming back in, as it will several times in today's chapter. So that's one. There is a joke embedded. It's it's deeply embedded in a moment where uh, we're coming to the end of the school year, and so Anne is talking about all the things that are being done and said at school, and there is a line where she hears someone say, "Sweets to the sweet." as a nice thing to say to somebody. And her response is, I know they got it from a book that didn't come out of this person's mouth, whole cloth. And it's true. But the book that it came out of, if it hasn't already rung bells for you, the book that it came out of is Hamlet. And it's at Ophelia's funeral. So here's the audio clip for you so you can hear the context.
1: fair and unpolluted
3: flesh, may violet spring, I tell thee, churlish priest, a ministering angel shall my sister be when thou liest howling. What?
0: Sweets. To the sweet. Farewell. I hope thou shouldst have been my Hamlet's wife. I thought thy bride-bed to have decked, sweet maid not to have strewed thy grave.
1: Oh, treble woe.
0: Fall. So that's Queen Gertrude putting flowers over Ophelia as she's being buried. I know, spoiler alert, Ophelia gets buried. It's not exactly a line you would want to say to someone who you were, you know, in love with. Boy, So that's one joke. There is a reference to a song, My Home on the Hill. This is not a melancholy, capital R, romantic song. This is actually a pretty happy song. And uh, I've got a link out to the sheet music. I couldn't find a recording of it for you, but I did find the sheet music. So if you're interested in seeing that, it is available, again, at craftlit.com slash 489. And you will hear a reference to a pinafore and an apron. So, I actually went out and I looked to see if there was a difference between a pinafore and an apron. And I found one woman on a chat room from 2006 saying a pinafore is a pinafore because it was something to pin a, four a dress to protect it. So, you'd, you'd pin it to the front, the four, fore, F O R E, of the dress. You've probably seen really good BBC shows or, or videos where you can actually see the pins in women's bodices, where they pin up an apron over the bodice of their, their dress. It seems to me that that would have been kind of impractical because you'd stab yourself, but of course they didn't have safety pins back then. The only other option I could think of would be to tack it on with needle and thread, which actually makes a little bit more sense because that's something you could do every day and just cut the thread and no big deal. I'm fairly sure I have seen in in a movie somewhere but I'm blanking on which one where you actually do get to see a woman being stitched into her bodice and that's pretty rare you don't often see that but that is that is in fact during at least one one extended period and I think it was pre-Elizabeth somebody correct me I'm not positive about that but you you would get stitched into your bodice every morning woohoo so that's fun. But pinafores and aprons. Aprons are pretty much what you think they are. Pinafores are a little bit more complete. They, they cover more of the front of the dress or of the clothes and wrap around in back. So there's a, a larger panel that wraps around to the back. Not just the strings that you would tie an apron on with, but more, uh, more like a house coat, actually. But fastened in the back. And it was something that girls would wear. That way you could wear, for example, a nice dress underneath, and then you could have a pinafore that you put on top. Or you could have one plain everyday dress, you know, plain and simple, but well-made. So if it's well-made, it's going to take up a lot of fabric. Uh, But then you could have several pinafores that are less expensive, less fabric, less difficult to make, but give you an opportunity to kind of switch stuff up. It'd be like Like kids at private school who have a a uniform that they have to wear, but there are no necessarily no restrictions on what you do to your hair or what kind of socks you wear or something like that. The the one place where you can kind of show your individuality. So a pinafore would have given you a little bit of access to something like that. And again, because it's not so much fabric and it didn't have to be particularly expensive fabric, it could just be colorful and fun. So aprons, exactly what you think they are. Pinafores, a little bit more. Lots of pictures for you on the show notes for this week. There's also a reference to starching clothes as part of the laundry process. And of course, as i'm as I'm listening to the chapter, all of a sudden I said, Wait a minute, I have only ever starched anything with spray on starch. I have never actually starched anything as part of the laundry process itself. So, I had to go look that up, right? Turns out that starching clothes goes way back. Um, They do have at least one reference, one, only one reference, going back into the 1300s. But once you get into the 1500s, you start to get more and more references to it because you know what's coming, right? Ruffs. All those Elizabethan ruffs that people were wearing, those suckers had to be starched. So in order to pull that off, you have to have a way to make starch and use it. And you would... You would have to soak the fabric into the starch and then pleat it into the structure that you want it to stay into and then dry it. And they didn't have irons. Your eyes are bugging out of your head right now, aren't they? They bugged out of my head too. So they didn't have irons. What they did have at the time, and this is back in the 1500s and before, they had things called slick stones, S L I C K. Slick stone, all one word. Uh, you usually had a slick stone board that you could work on, which winds up becoming kind of indented, like a, a matate that the Native Americans would grind corn with. You have the kind of depression, and then the the rock that you would do the grinding with. But the slick stone could be warmed up because it's a rock. Like a, in fact, think of the rocks that they use in hot rock massages. That's pretty much exactly what they look like. Eventually, they started making them with handles and things like that. They made them out of glass or or something uh, heavy and smooth, and that they could fashion a handle onto. Um but these these rocks, these slightly warmed rocks, would be what you used to both f- straighten out and flatten the fabric, but also what you used to impress those folds with, kind of like a like an embossing tool if you're trying to fold paper. It's kind of like using a, a paper opener to push down on a fold in the paper to make it a really crisp fold. They did that and if you had a an absorbent board that went with your slick stone you would be pressing some of the starch out of the fabric and into the board which would also make the board more effective as a starching tool itself. It also turns out that making starch The kind of starch that you would want to use on your clothing was really, really complicated. It's not at all like just adding (laughs) cornstarch to water. They had to extract the starch from the thing, whether it was corn or potato or whatever. They had to extract the starch first. And in the beginning, the starches were pretty gloppy and yellowy and kind of gross. And they'd leave like starch lumps in your Clothing, which was just gross. Then a group of women in Holland, not surprisingly, because Antwerp was kind of the center of the fabric trade at the time. This is still again around the 1500s. A group of women figured out how to make a whiter starch, and then they figured out how to make a bluish starch, and that was the winner. Because if you've ever used bluing in a whitewash to kind of perk up your whites, blue. A little tiny bit of blue really makes the whites look whiter. Because magic. (laughs) Because somebody who understands physics and light can call in and explain that. Eric Code 206-350-1642. Call and let us know why blue makes white look bright. That'd be cool to know. I mean, for real, like, in a way that you could explain it to another person. So, starching. Was a to do, so when you hear the reference to the starching having been done, it's an accident. But just because it was an accident doesn't mean it was lazy, or that it wasn't a lot of work. It was. Although by the time our book is taking place, there were in fact metal irons, the heavy metal irons that you see people warming, on hot plates or or over a, an open hearth. So, Anne and Marilla would have had access to an actual iron, which would have helped the process quite a bit. But still, it's a significant chunk of time that it would take to starch anything. All right, I think that's it. Let's listen to chapter 20 of Anne of Green Gables, read for us by Kim Zuckert. Here we go. Anne
3: of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery, read by Kim Zuckert. Chapter 20, A Good Imagination Gone Wrong. Spring had come once more to Green Gables, the beautiful, capricious, reluctant Canadian spring, lingering along through April and May in a succession of sweet, fresh, chilly days, with pink sunsets and miracles of resurrection and growth. The maples in Lover's Lane were red-budded, and little curly ferns pushed up around the Dryad's bubble. Away up in the Barrens, behind Mr. Silas Sloane's place, the Mayflowers blossomed out, pink and white stars of sweetness under their brown leaves. All the schoolgirls and boys had one golden afternoon gathering them, coming home in the clear, echoing twilight with arms and baskets full of flowery spoil. "'I'm so sorry for people who live in lands where there are no Mayflowers,' said Anne. Diana said perhaps they have something better, but there couldn't be anything better than Mayflowers, could there, Marilla? And Diana says if they don't know what they're like, then they don't miss them. But I think that is the saddest thing of all. I think it would be tragic, Marilla, not to know what mayflowers are like and not to miss them. Do you know what I think mayflowers are, Marilla? I think they must be the souls of the flowers that died last summer, and this is their heaven. But we had a splendid time today, Marilla. We had our lunch down in the big mossy hollow by an old well, such a romantic spot. Charlie Sloane dared Artie Gillis to jump over it, and Artie did because he wouldn't take a dare. Nobody would in school. It's very fashionable to dare. Mr. Phillips gave all the Mayflowers he found to Prissy Andrews, and I heard him to say, "'Sweets to the sweet.' He got that out of a book, I know, but it shows he has some imagination. I was offered some Mayflowers, too, but I rejected them with scorn. I can't tell you the person's name because I have vowed never to let it cross my lips.' "'We made wreaths of the Mayflowers and put them on our hats, "'and when the time came to go home, "'we marched in procession down the road, two by two, "'with our bouquets and wreaths, singing My Home on the Hill. "'Oh, it was so thrilling, Marilla. "'All Mr. Silas Sloane's folks rushed out to see us, "'and everybody we met on the road stopped and stared after us. "'We made a real sensation.' "'Not much wonder, such silly doings,' was Marilla's response. "'After the Mayflowers came the Violets.' and Violet Vale was empurpled with them. Anne walked through it on her way to school with reverent steps and worshipping eyes as if she trod on holy ground. Somehow, she told Diana, when I'm going through here, I don't really care whether, get, whether anybody gets ahead of me in class or not. When I'm up in school it's all different, and I care as much as ever. There's such a lot of different Anne's in me. I sometimes think that is why I'm such a troublesome person." If I was just the one Anne, it would be ever so much more comfortable, but then it wouldn't be half so interesting. One June evening, when the orchards were pink-blossomed again, when the frogs were singing silvery-sweet in the marshes about the head of the Lake of Shining Waters, and the air was full of the savour of clover-fields and balsamic fir-woods, Anne was sitting by her gable-window. She had been studying her lessons, but it had grown too dark to see the book, so she had fallen into wide-eyed reverie, looking out past the boughs of the Snow Queen, once more bestarred with its tufts of blossom. In all essential respects, the little gable chamber was unchanged, the walls were as white, the pincushion as hard, the chairs as stiffly and yellowly upright as ever, yet the whole character of the room was altered. It was full of a new, vital, pulsing personality that seemed to pervade it and to be quite independent of schoolgirl books and dresses and ribbons, and even of the cracked blue jug full of apple blossoms on the table. It was as if all the dreams, sleeping and waking, of its vivid occupant had taken a visible, although unmaterial form, and had tapestried the bare room with splendid filmy tissues of rainbow and moonshine. Presently Marilla came briskly in with some of Anne's freshly ironed school aprons. She hung them over a chair and sat down with a short sigh. She had had one of her headaches that afternoon, and although the pain had gone, she felt weak and tuckered out, as she expressed it. Anne looked at her with eyes limpid with sympathy. "'I do truly wish I could have had the headache in your place, Marilla. I would have endured it joyfully for your sake.' "'I guess you did your part in attending to your work and letting me rest,' said Marilla. "'You seem to have gone on fairly well and make fewer mistakes than usual. "'Of course it wasn't exactly necessary to starch Matthew's handkerchiefs. "'And most people, when they put a pie in the oven to warm it up for dinner, "'take it out and eat it, when it gets hot, instead of leaving it to be burned to a crisp. "'But that doesn't seem to be your way, evidently.' "'Headaches always left Marilla somewhat sarcastic. "'Oh, I'm so sorry!' "'said Anne penitently. "'I never thought about that pie from the moment I put it in the oven until now, "'although I felt instinctively that there was something missing on the dinner-table. "'I was firmly resolved when you left me in charge this morning "'not to imagine anything but keep my thoughts on facts. "'I did pretty well until I put the pie in, "'and then an irresistible temptation came to me to imagine "'I was an enchanted princess shut up in a lonely tower "'with a handsome knight riding to my rescue on a coal-black steed. So that is how I came to forget the pie. I didn't know I'd starch the handkerchiefs. All the time I was ironing, I was trying to think of a name for a new island Diana and I have discovered up the brook. It's the most ravishing spot, Marilla. There are two maple trees on it, and the brook flows right around it. At last it struck me that it would be splendid to call it Victoria Island, because we found it on the Queen's birthday. Both Diana and I are very loyal." But I'm sorry about that pie and the handkerchiefs. I wanted to be extra good today, because it's an anniversary. Do you remember what happened this day last year, Marilla?" No, I can't think of anything special. Oh, Marilla, it was the day I came to Green Gables. I shall never forget it. It was the turning point in my life. Of course it wouldn't seem so important to you. I've been here for a year, and I've been so happy. Of course I've had my troubles, but one can live down troubles. Are you sorry you kept me, Marilla?" "'No, I can't say I'm sorry,' said Marilla, who sometimes wondered how she could have lived before Anne came to Green Gables. "'No, not exactly sorry. If you've finished your lessons, Anne, I want you to run over and ask Mrs. Barry if she'll lend me Diana's apron-pattern.' "'Oh, it's—it's too dark,' cried Anne. "'Too dark? Why, it's only twilight. Goodness knows you've gone over often enough after dark.' "'I'll go over early in the morning,' said Anne eagerly. "'I'll get up at sunrise and go over, Marilla.' "'What has got into your head now, Anne Shirley? "'I want that pattern to cut out your new apron this evening. "'Go at once and be smart, too.' "'I'll have to go around by the road, then,' said Anne, "'taking up her hat reluctantly. "'Go by the road and waste half an hour? "'I'd like to catch you.' "'I can't go through the haunted wood, Marilla,' cried Anne desperately. Marilla stared. "'The haunted wood? Are you crazy? What under the canopy is the haunted wood?' "'The spruce wood over the brook,' said Anne in a whisper. "'Fiddlesticks! There is no such thing as a haunted wood anywhere. Who has been telling you such stuff?' "'Nobody,' confessed Anne. "'Diane and I just imagined the wood was haunted. All the places around here are so so commonplace. We just got this up for our own amusement.' "'We begin it in April. "'Hunted Wood is so very romantic, Marilla. "'We chose the Spruce Grove because it's so gloomy.' Oh, we have imagined the most harrowing things. There's a white lady walks along the brook, just about this time of night, and wrings her hands and utters wailing cries. She appears when there's to be a death in the family. And the ghost of a little murdered child haunts the corner up by Idlewild. It creeps up behind you and lays its cold fingers on your hands. So, oh, Marilla, it gives me a shudder to think of it. And there's a headless man stalks up and down the path, and skeletons glower at you between the boughs. Oh, Marilla, I wouldn't go through the haunted wood after dark now for anything. I'd be sure that white things would reach out from behind the trees and grab me.' "'Did ever anyone hear the like?' ejaculated Marilla, who had listened in dumb amazement. "'Anne, Shirley, do you mean to tell me you believe all that wicked nonsense of your own imagination?' "'Not believe exactly,' faltered Anne. "'At least I don't believe it in daylight. But after dark, Marilla, it's different.' "'That's when ghosts walk.' "'There are no such things as ghosts Anne.' "'Oh, but there are, Marilla!' cried Anne eagerly. "'I know people who have seen them, and they are respectable people. "'Charlie Sloane said that his grandmother saw his grandfather "'driving home the cows one night after he'd been buried for a year. "'You know Charlie... Sloane's grandmother wouldn't tell a story for anything. She's a very religious woman. And Mrs. Thomas's father was pursued home one night by a lamb of fire with its head cut off, hanging by a strip of skin. He said he knew it was the spirit of his brother, and that it was a warning he would die within nine days. He didn't, but he died two years after. So you see, it was really true. And Ruby Gillis says-Anne Shirley interrupted Marilla. "'I never want to hear you talking in this fashion again. "'I've had my doubts about that imagination of yours right along, "'and if this is going to be the outcome of it, "'I won't countenance any such doings. "'You'll go right over to Barry's, "'and you'll go through that spruce grove "'just for a lesson and a warning to you, "'and never let me hear a word out of your head "'about haunted woods again.' "'Anne might plead and cry as she liked, "'and she did, for her terror was very real.' Her imagination had run away with her, and she held the spruce grove in mortal dread after nightfall. But Marilla was inexorable. She marched the shrinking ghost-seer down to the spring and ordered her to proceed straight away over the bridge and into the dusky retreats of wailing ladies and headless specters beyond. "'Oh, Marilla, how can you be so cruel?' sobbed Anne. "'What would you feel like if a white thing did snatch me up and carry me off?' "'I'll risk it,' said Marilla, unfeelingly. "'You know I always mean when I say. "'I'll cure you of imagining ghosts into places. "'March now.' "'Anne marched. "'That is, she stumbled over the bridge "'and went shuddering up the horrible dim path beyond. "'Anne never forgot that walk. "'Bitterly did she repent the license she had given to her imagination.' The goblins of her fancy lurked in every shadow about her, reaching out their cold, fleshless hands to grasp the terrified small girl who had called them into being. A white strip of birch bark blowing up from the hollow over the brown floor of the grove made her heart stand still. The long-drawn wail of two old boughs rubbing against each other brought out the perspiration in beads on her forehead. The swoop of bats in the darkness over her was as the wings of unearthly creatures. When she reached Mr. William Bell's field, she fled across it as if pursued by an army of white things, and arrived at the Berry kitchen door so out of breath that she could hardly gasp out her request for the apron pattern. Diana was away, so that she had no excuse to linger. The dreadful return journey had to be faced.' Anne went back over it with shut eyes, preferring to take the risk of dashing her braids out among the boughs to that of seeing a white thing. When she finally stumbled over the log bridge, she drew one long, shivering breath of relief. Well, so nothing caught you? said Marilla unsympathetically. Oh, m, m-, m- marilla chattered Anne. i will b- b- be contented with c- c- Commonplace places after this. End of chapter 20.
0: I love the name for this chapter. (laughs) A Good Imagination Gone Wrong. It just kills me because it's so true. The whole haunted wood, like working yourself up into a mental state where you now believe your story, which I mean, psychologically, we know now. We know that this is an actual real thing. That actually really happens, and people can convince themselves of all sorts of things. If you tell the story enough times, it becomes reality to your brain, which is both dangerous but also, in this case, kind of funny. But it is also not made up because this is really, truly a Lucy Maud Montgomery thing. I have a, a little passage from one of her journals that I'm going to read to you because it's just awesome. So uh, this is from an appendix to one of the Anne Green Gables books that I found. The haunted wood is also based on an actual spot. While a child, Montgomery and her friends Dave and Well Nelson, like Anne and Diana, invented a haunted wood for their own amusement, and then found themselves unable to resist the power of their own imaginations. And the quote from her journal is, none of us really believed it first. That the grove was haunted, or that the mysterious white things which we pretended to see flitting through at dismal hours were aught but the creations of our own fantasy, we soon came to believe implicitly in our myths, and not one of us would have gone near the grove after sunset on pain of death. Death! What was death compared to the unearthly horror of falling into the clutches of a white thing? (laughs) I love that. I. I just love it. There's a lot of Lucy Maud Montgomery's childhood that pops up from time to time in these stories actual mm-hmm. moments like this and those are always really good parts. So yay. And did you notice that Gilbert gave Anne flowers? Okay, we've crossed the line now. Gilbert is no longer just a gadfly. He's no longer just an obnoxious boy. He's tenacious. He's not given up. And And she's certainly not giving him any indication that she's ever even going to speak to him. So, so wow. Okay. That's commitment on his part. Wow. So I was impressed by that. I also loved Anne's line that there are such a lot of Anne's inside me. And I thought, boy, if that doesn't just sum up adolescence, that feeling of trying to kind of sift through all the different versions of you to figure out who you, who you want to be, who you are. And And how important it is to give kids the space to figure that out for themselves. Who do you want to be? Do you want to be a goofball? Do you want to be serious? Do you want to be scholarly? Do you want to be a scientist? Do you want to be a ballerina? You know what? What is it that floats your boat? And then help encourage them to be as good a version of themselves as they can possibly be. And that's not easy either. But beautifully put, I thought, by Lucy Maud Montgomery. I also thought it was interesting that Marilla didn't remember that this was the anniversary of Anne coming to them, because as we see, she's quite aware of the impact that Anne has had on her life. And so I I was kind of surprised that she didn't remember. And I kept looking at the text, trying to figure out, okay, is this one of those places where she says she doesn't remember, but she really does? And she's just messing with Anne. But I don't I don't think so. I think she really didn't remember in the beginning. But she, she cracks me up when she gets too emotional, and she's like, I'm not going to respond in any way that indicates that I could be close to tears, because I have to be the grown-up in the room. <laughs> and I I like that. I also loved that with The Haunted Wood, that Anne said she, she doesn't believe in it in the daylight, but at nighttime it's scary. And that's so true, right? You can handle seeing or hearing about just about anything as long as it's daylight out, but the second it's dark... All of a sudden, all the spooky parts come flooding back to you. and now, now you're not so sure about whether it's true or not anymore, because yikes, so i thought I thought that was really, well, really well done. I also thought that the the way that Lucy Maud Montgomery handled the magical thinking, the kind of conspiracy theory, magical thinking, that he he knew that he was going to die in what was it, nine days? And of course, he didn't, but he did die two years later. So, you know, there, that just <laughs> proves that it's true. That is such great superstition thinking. It's such a great example and also hilarious. So, it's a good place to end for the week. I hope you enjoyed our chapter today. I hope you have a great week. I will talk to you soon. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. A big thanks to all the Craftlit listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com slash premium or via patreon.com slash craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our Facebook.com slash Craftlit page or follow at Craftlit on Twitter and share the show with your followers, too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.